The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for May 31st, 2018, the Ambien and Racism Edition. I am David Plotz of Atlas Obscura, here together with my confreres in the CBS radio studio, John Dickerson of CBS This Morning. Thanks for having us. Thanks for hosting us. It's great to be with you all. I love when we're together. I love when we're together, too. Did you say with you all if it's just the two of us and then with you both? Or would you do you still say with you well, like, all? All together, right? No, you would the all, all encompass John as well? Because then it would be all. No, you're exactly right. I think it should be with you both, but yeah. I'm so overwhelmed by the all that it's just. <laughs> it's I'm surprised I didn't start the sentence with it. It's as if we've been fruitful and multiplied in this very room. Exactly. <laughs> that, of course, is Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine. Hello, Emily. Hello, Emily, hello. Emily's down from New Haven. I'm up from Washington. John is merely here. <laughs> <laughs> Always. Yeah. And that's pretty much the way people Scott. feel about the show and my presence. Merely <laughs> <laughs> here will be on the tombstone, the Dickerson tombstone. On this week's GabFest, did the Trump administration lose 1,500 children or did they do something much worse than the catastrophe in Puerto Rico was even more deadly than we knew? How much blame does the president deserve? How much blame do we American citizens and we American journalists deserve for our neglect of that terrible, terrible disaster. And then the Roseanne Fuhrer. Plus, we will have cocktail chatter. And before we get any further, we, of course, have a live show coming up in Philadelphia, the Keswick Theater in Glenside, PA, just outside the city, 7.30 p.m. on July 18th. There are tickets available at slate.com slash live. Come join us. Uh, Eileen Bazelon has not, in fact, bought all tickets yet, apparently. She no, has not. there are a few left. She's left a few. Come on, Eileen. <laughs> uh, <laughs> nicely, nicely done. That's not her generation. That's my mom. Just yeah. by the way for everybody. Uh, is she coming? She's definitely coming. And some of her friends are coming, but other people can still come too. All right. Slate.com slash live. Get tickets. It's going to be a fun show on July 18th. The where are the children hashtag brought uh, satisfied horror to many liberals this past week, stemming from an initial claim that the Trump administration had lost 1,500 unaccompanied minors who had been picked up crossing the border and placed with caregivers, placed with people who would be responsible for them. This sort of, well, we'll get into the details of it, but this partly true story merged with the all too true story of what the Trump administration is actually doing, the true savagery that's being carried out in our name uh, by the Department of Homeland Security, the policy of separating all children detained crossing the border from their parents, basically by, as Emily, I'm sure will explain, policy that stems from charging anyone who is uh, caught crossing the border improperly with a crime and thus putting them in criminal detention, which children are not allowed in, and then putting casting these children to the wind to foster care or whatever uh and and this is occurring even in cases where where families are seeking asylum so um let's start with the the story that is maybe less of a story than people hoped no let's not start there because i feel like this is getting too much attention so or let's do it really contextual john dickerson please let me raise my hand i I sympathize with what you're saying emily except what i what i found difficult and we've uh, we've gone over this in the age of trump but is like 
I think I know what you're about to say, and it's a shame that I'm interrupting you because you can just let you say it. But but the the pulling apart of the spaghetti from the sauce, I think, does feel like it needs to happen in these instances because it, it's gotten all jumbled up. And so people are, are emotional based on the thing that's jumbled up. And then it's hard to kind of focus on the thing that it does need our attention, which is what you're saying. And I feel like there's this thing where when you try to explain to people how it's gotten jumbled up, some people will interpret you as if you're making excuses for um, the administration, and that shouldn't be. We should we should still be able to explain stuff um, for the purposes of clarifying and put it in context w- without being accused of making apologies for the administration. So having done that, will you explain to us why these two things are different? Yes, in 30 seconds or less. The government um, settled about 1,500 unaccompanied minors with people whom the government had vetted, mostly family members. And then the government tried to follow up by placing a phone call. Hey, are you still there? Do you have this kid? A lot of those people could not in one phone call be reached probably because a lot of them are undocumented and not super eager to stay in touch with not ICE itself, but another connected arm. The of Office of Refugee Resettlement. Precisely. And, and so per- it is not that there are almost 1,500 children who like are gone and probably terrible things have happened to them. It is that they are under the radar for now. And we should be... Um, really concerned about what's happening at the border with these separations and have like a oh, tiny no, little no, bit you of... No, 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 you've gone too fast. I'm trying, I'm trying to get away from but wait, this. I feel like we but, spent all week earnestly explaining this. But wait, I don't, but I still think people get confused. So, and the, the, the first thing that you've explained is an existing program that has been, it's kind of, the way it's been done across administrations, these kids come, the Office of Refugee Resettlement sends them to homes, and with their relatives, with usually, their relatives, which is a good idea. Yeah, which is all good, and it's and it's a good thing for government to be engaged in the checking up on them to make sure that they're okay. Well, except we don't want them to check up so much that we then put in jeopardy these undocumented people. Well, like one of the solutions to the quote loss, the the more like we're not we haven't totally kept track. Problem is to start fingerprinting people who want well, to apply to. And that is a bad idea. I don't know that that's a bad idea. Why is that such a bad idea? It's a bad idea because a lot of them are undocumented and the risk to them of being fingerprinted and tracked by ICE is greater than the risk. If you have have vetted people, if you have vetted people and you are handing someone to their relative, then the notion that that relative also needs to be fingerprinted when that But the notion that a child who, an unaccompanied child who crosses into the United States is essentially, you know, we, we put them with someone who's vetted and then... That's they're the they're gone. They're lost to the system. I mean, one of the shocking things to me about the Office of Refugee Resettlement piece is that they consider their responsibility over once the child is placed. I mean, these calls they were making to check up on were the kids, like voluntary. they were voluntary they calls. There's no it. requirement. Like basically these kids who who should not be in the country or it's unclear whether they have the right to be in this country. And certainly someone should be tracking them, seeing if they they. uh you know, are entitled to live here and to also seeing if they're getting the proper services and education they need. And we're not doing any of that. And so so the idea that you you don't track the people they're uh, in the in the care of seems to me weird. Monitoring These are people, children who have crossed who who are essentially wards of the state in some sense. But they're not wards of the state. Exactly. And treating being a ward of the state as reason for 
you know, monitoring undocumented families is really risky. We're talking about relative risks here. It's not that there's zero risk to kids when the government doesn't check up, but there is significant risk of detention and deportation right now from the government getting their hands into your life. And that's something we need to well, be but, cognizant well, of. Go ahead, John. But also, don't you you don't want to create a system in which any kid that can come, kid, or that there's an invitation to come to come to the border. If you can come to the border, nobody ever checks up on you later. Because then you have the the moral hazard problem is that you can basically, if you're a kid, you can flee and, you know, once you get to the border, you're going to be okay because you'll disappear into the American system. Right. That's true. And, but And also, you, it's not 1,500 kids. I mean, it's 40,000 kids. Well, which the 1,500 are the ones who... They, 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 they couldn't didn't actually, actually yeah. That, 80 plus yeah. percent of them did answer the yeah. phone. The question is, what kinds of efforts do we want the government to make? And is the follow-up call enough or do we want more something more rigorous and something more rigorous is fine with me as long as it is really clear we are not jeopardizing people's status by asking these questions well, well i think there's there's you have to separate the fact that we have a we have as we'll get to in a second we have a government whose immigration policies right now is designed to be as cruel and and punitive as possible and therefore any any time you expose people who have uh who have uh, improper immigration status to them, you're endangering them. And so, of course, you you don't want to put these caregivers at risk and you don't want to put these kids at risk unnecessarily because our federal government is behaving monstrously. Separate that from the fact that 40,000 children showed up in an, uh, without a country they an, don't an uncopied live in. minors. They are in the care of the United States government in some sense. And to to sort of wash your hands of that, to absolve yourself of any responsibility of keeping track of them, and and to then know that that when those kids in ten years want to get, uh, you know, they want to get a job, they want to properly, they want to be integrated into society because of well, they're tomorrow's they're, dreamers. These yeah, they're kids. tomorrow's that they're not going to be allowed to 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 kind of be that cavalier about tracking them seems weird to me. Seems like you should be tracking them. It's just the the fact is that we have this absolutely terrible immigration leadership right now. Well, right. I mean, it depends which universe you're living in, the more ideal universe that you described versus the universe, which is one in which separate from this problem, and this has been the confusion, at the border, there are many children who come with families who are crossing illegally, but also with families who perfectly legally are seeking asylum. So, in this scenario, you show up at the border because, you know, you feel that you are of terrible risk of violence or death in your home country of El Salvador or Honduras or Guatemala or wherever. You have children. You say, I'm seeking asylum, and they rip your children away from you. And that is are the stories we are hearing from some of these challenges. And that is horrifying, and it's happening in the context of a policy that is designed to dramatically increase the numbers. When Caitlin Dickerson of the New York Times reported on this in April, there were 700 of these kids. No relation to John Dickerson. Now she thinks those numbers have skyrocketed. Um, her Twitter feed is a really good one to follow, as is Josie Duffy Rice's. She did, like, God's work over the weekend of trying to correct some of these errors. Anyway... That is the policy we are looking at right now. And it's also in the context of the Trump administration talking about long-term detention for children separated from their parents. And that is something that should horrify us. So we're talking now about this, the second thing that has been conflated. And yes. what this is, is a change in the way in which the Department of Justice chooses to enforce, um, chooses to basically hand them, handle asylum seekers, treating them as criminals, and as a result of treating them as criminals, the children they bring with them are separated from them, and also effectively treated as criminals. Well, they're right, and they're and, and this is the new case. this is the new thing. This is the this is the new thing the administration has been doing in the 
interpretation of what they're the way they should carry out their their um, their jobs because the zero to- so-called zero tolerance policy is one to just keep people from coming. And then two, the administration believes they're over people are overusing the asylum claim. Is that yes? And, and right. So let's play this out. Why do this at the border with asylum seekers? Because you want to deter people from seeking asylum in the United States and you federal government also know that a lot of people apply for asylum and then they get into the country and yes, they have court appearances. They have to prove their claim. They can make a, it's called, they have to show credible fear to a border agent and then they have to like show up and testify and prove that out. And a lot of them lose. And some of them melt into the fabric of the United States and become undocumented. And because of you know, what I would call the sort of hysteria of the Trump administration right now about immigration, which is not dramatically on the rise, not some huge threat to the country. Because of all of that, this notion that we have to stop people from even trying to seek asylum has kind of taken over. And it's a violation of international law to try to um, treat people seeking asylum as criminals. Like, it absolutely is. is does everyone who is caught crossing uh, in an undocumented way, does every single person basically say I'm seeking asylum? Can 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 you just say it? Well, once you know, I mean, to present for asylum, you're supposed to present yourself. You have to voluntarily show yeah, up and do it. If you go to a border crossing station, if once they catch you, you can say it, but it's not, but you're not the same not, thing. You've illegally right. crossed. The um so the so does the deterrent argument have any moral weight? I mean, there is going back to John's moral hazard point there. There's a real problem if people think they can get into the United States without consequence. And and so you want to discourage people from doing it. And you also don't. And this goes to your point about the safety of children. You do not want people to pretend they are parents and, you know, use kids as a way to get in. That is potentially scary. But so so does can the deterrence argument be justified in this case? Is there any is there any I mean, certainly DHS and Secretary Nielsen think it think it's okay? I mean, I would say no. And it's not, look, immigration policy is incredibly difficult. Many people, most people do not believe in open borders. And so once you're not in a world of open borders, you're in a world of restrictions and setting lines and you treat some people differently from others. And during the Obama administration, there was a lot of concern about these family detention centers where they were holding people together at that time. At the time, that seemed bad. But this amping up and, you know, ripping uh, families apart this way, like, that just can't be the right answer. It just cannot. It causes so much human suffering. I just can't believe this is necessary. Yeah. I, I mean, it seems to me it's it's immoral. I mean, it's absolutely immoral. It cannot possibly be justified. The separation of families, the separation of parents from children, without there being a, a kind of, like, you know, clear danger to the rest of society without there being some incredibly strong, compelling reason is a complete, it's a, it's a moral crime and we should be absolutely ashamed. It's, it's totally, utterly wrong. And the answer, I mean, I think if you, if your view is, well, these people need to be detained, then you say, well, we need to build family detention centers and keep people in family detention centers, which is, you know, its own shitty, crappy solution, but it's certainly better than than the the wrenching of children from parents, which is it's I mean, all you need to do is just to imagine yourself. All you need to do is think like what would happen if I had if I I was just told not to hit the table. 
all that you can do is, I mean, you imagine that. I mean, Secretary yeah. Nielsen has kids and John Kelly has kids and it's, it's, it's a fucking outrage. When what Secretary Nielsen said is like, well, these families are being treated the same way as people who commit crimes in the United States and parents go to prison. But that's not true because if you're seeking asylum, you are not committing a crime. And we've also lost sight of the conditions in some home countries that are leading people to be so desperate as to make this dangerous journey and then submit to what we're doing right now. Like it has not been a picnic for a very long time. I think one thing we should one thing that comes to mind for me is that the United States does make a choice in its budget to give money to countries all around the world where we have decided that it's part of our role in the world to help the starving, the sick, the poor, the malnourished all over the world. And so we give money to other people, even though it doesn't directly help us. It seems to me that this is, has to should be thought of in the same way, that the country makes a choice that keeping families together is a morally good thing to do. It's expensive, but it's expensive to give money to to people who are suffering from famine as well. So it's a, handling them uh, humanely is in keeping with all kinds of policies that the U.S. has in all kinds of other places as well. Even though this is obviously in the hyper-politically charged area of the border, it seems to me that the values that, that are a part of humane giving in other areas should pertain here, just for consistency's sake. And then secondly, the ripping apart puts them into a system that's, I mean, these stories are, it's a system that can't handle... So we can't handle keeping the families together, but the system's not handling ripping them apart either because you've got right. parents who can't find their children. Nobody knows where their children are. The children are then into a system where they can't get advocacy for them, um, and it's overloading that system. So it's not like the thing they're being thrown into is is going to be less costly and less ruinous as it deals with these cases. I, don't, I just don't understand how conservative... Conservatives who have made such a big deal about the family and the idea of the family as the defining unit can be so cavalier in this case. It really, Callous. it makes me sick. It makes me sick. I mean, it's, these are our ancestors. These are, these are our parents and our grandparents and our, and it's, it's wrong. And I think, again, I think you can believe in a quite restrictive immigration policy, which I don't, but you can believe in a quite restrictive immigration policy and still know that this is a moral crime. It's right. it's horrible. Anyway, so Slate Plus members, you get extra segments with all Slate podcasts, including this one. You can be a Slate Plus member for just $35 a year and support Slate's journalism. Our extra Slate Plus segment today uh, will be about the sins of the fathers, the sins of our parents. So Fred Trump, Donald Trump's father, may have been arrested at a KKK rally during the 1920s. Should that be held against his son in any way? When when should the sins of your relatives be visited upon politicians and celebrities? Go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member and get this Slate Plus segment and other ones. This episode of the GabFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos it is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura Frames, in the notes that I have here, says moms like Aura Frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura Frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her Aura Frame so that she's got great new photos every week. 
So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an aura frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. The toll taken by Hurricane Maria on Puerto Rico is much, much, much worse than the government has admitted. Federal government has said that 64 people died because of that storm. A new estimate from the Harvard School of Public Health or scientists associated with Harvard School of Public Health suggests that 4,600 people may have died as a result of the hurricane and the disruptions to healthcare and power and water in the months after the storm. That number is an estimate. It could be more, it could be less. But what has become clear is that that Hurricane Maria was the most catastrophic event of the Trump presidency, possibly the second worst natural disaster or disaster in United States history. But Are it you is, comparing it to Katrina and saying that? No, oh, to sorry. the Galveston. Isn't the Galveston yeah, flood, flood is the one that had the, the greatest cost of life. And that was in 1900-something, right? Yeah. Yeah. So we're, t- we're going yeah. back a little yeah, bit. Yeah, much worse than... Much worse than Katrina. Potentially, human, we, human cost. Right. As far... I mean, it's it's hard to tell because Katrina yeah. was 1,800 deaths and there's a sort of span here, right? Yeah. But it appears yeah. that way. Uh, but it, in any case, it's essentially a footnote to what's been happening uh, elsewhere in the, this country and particularly around the Trump presidency. So, uh, first of all, do we know that 4,600 people died? No, we have a really um, clever study in which a whole lot of um, Harvard grad students, it sounds like, a whole lot of researchers fanned out in Puerto Rico. They looked, they tried to make it representative and stratified. So they went all over the country and they tried to very carefully survey people and then make sure they were getting a representative sample. And they went to about 3,300 homes and then they found... Um, I think it was like around 30, 38 deaths. 38 deaths. And then they extrapolated from that. And so what they come up with. In the three months, in the 38, excuse me, sorry, sorry. No, please. The th- in the three months after, the in, during the hurricane and the three months after the hurricane. Right. And the three months after is important because one of the things they found is that a lot of deaths seem to be caused by interrupted medical services, which makes a lot of sense given all the things we know about the way the island's electricity was knocked out and so many things didn't function. So then they came up with a kind of um, spectrum of number, right, that goes from like 800 deaths all the way up to more than 8,000 as sort of a possible range. And then they, they're kind of best guesstimate is in uh, above 4,000 and it has what's called a confidence interval of 95%. And that's like the way you do a study like this. It's not the same thing, obviously, as going around and counting every single person, but it tries to give what's due to these places that have been under-investigated and under-reported. And I think we should also add the New York Times looked through all the vital statistics for Puerto Rico in this time period, and they found it was like an extra 1,052 deaths, more than would be expected. Because obviously, like in a three-month period, some people would have died absent the hurricane. And also, uh, just as a marker, in G- uh, GW is doing another study too, which is coming out in a couple of weeks, about how many died. So we should have a pretty 
I mean, we know we we should have a range here of of how the GW many one has the government. Puerto Rican government support, Puerto, I think, right. which and the Harvard one did not. Right. The Harvard one just went around the government because they were having trouble getting any data. Yeah. John, in what sense does the Trump administration have culpability for for these deaths? Why is it not just sort of bad luck and climate change? And- well, this to me is, a. Um, I spent a lot of time thinking about Port- the Puerto Rican uh, question when um, when I was working on the cover for The Atlantic because... There are two two ways in which presidents and administrations are responsible. There's the actual responsibility. How much does the federal government have to responsibility to clean up and then to anticipate the collateral effects of when a disaster hits a place and you know that it has bad uh, infrastructure and you know that that's then going to lead to the interruption of medical care. And so what are you doing? What's your actual responsibility? I've have looked around. There's a lot of assertion that they're on the hook, but then you say, okay, for the, for not doing X, Y, and Z. Um, and it's hard, that's hard to find. That's hard to find a specific, I'm not saying it's, I, I would really, I'm really anxious to find out what, you know, specific things did they not do that another administration might've done or that they would have done in say Houston versus Puerto Rico. We can get to the race question in a minute. So there's that part of a presidential and administrative responsibility. There's a second part that's purely symbolic. And that is basically what happened with uh, President Obama with the BP oil spill. So obviously the federal government had nothing to do with the fact that the Horizon 10 oil platform blew up and that there was a big gushing hole of oil into the ocean. However, at the time, uh, the president's approval rating dropped as a result of his inability to plug up the hole. Peggy Noonan wrote uh, an editorial. There were lots of editorials. She wrote, you know, he was supposed to be competent, arguing that Obama in not plugging the hole was showing that he was incompetent as a president. People called it Obama's Katrina, even though he had nothing to do with the initiating event. How does this how does this relate to Puerto Rico? <laughs> president Trump could You're say tell us. President Trump could say, look, Puerto Rico had horrible infrastructure. They had corrupt local governments that didn't do the preparation work. And so all of these deaths are the result of the fact that Puerto Rico is a special case. It's not like Houston, and therefore I shouldn't be on the hook for this. But a Obama's on the hook. So why, if he's on the hook for an oil spill, is Trump not? And then there's the second thing. When you talk to Obama administration officials about the BP oil spill, they would say, look, yeah, it was no picnic. But in the American government, there is no one complaint window people can go to when there is a sense of national outrage about something. And, you know, you got to suck it up when you're president. You are the complaint window. You are the person that has to go fix this or be in charge of fixing it. Because when people have this kind of sense of of outrage, they can't go to the senator for Tennessee to get it fixed. And so this is just a part of the role of the presidency to be the national complaint window. With President Trump, none of none of that is applied, either the specific penalty for specific things he could have done wrong or the kind of complaint window thing hasn't ha- hasn't applied. And I've, I, that fascinates me. I, I have some theories, but that's enough of me talking. Well, but so so one thing that's different about Puerto Rico is, of course, it is not a state. It has no senators in any case. It's detached from the contiguous 48 states. So it's not, there's not a lot of uh, media coverage of it. There aren't a lot of reporters there. And people like us, I've paid no attention at all. I, if, you know, here I am outraged at this death toll. Have I spent one minute in the last four months thinking a lot about Puerto Rico? No, I haven't. And so is there a moral culpability on the part of all of us? Yes, I think you can definitely put some of the blame on the 48 contiguous states and some on the press. Although I have to say, the press 
went. I mean, some people really like the hell out of went. And I don't, I feel like we can't lose sight of that. They did some really tough reporting. It was not me, but there were reporters who really did that. And David Begnaud of CBS has been, he's like the mayor of Puerto Rico. He's been, no, I I know, but it's for real. I mean, he won, like, this is why he won a Polk Award for his coverage of Puerto Rico. He went (laughs) down after this. I mean, it's, it's really been incredibly proud to, you know, I have nothing yeah, to no, do with no, it, kidding, but to I'm be associated kidding, with that. And and so I think there has been, but, you know, as we, we all know, you can write and work on a story really hard and you see that actually people on the other end of it are not, are not either watching or getting outraged or turning it into a response just because, so there's two, two people to look at, both the creators of the media and then the, and then the people reading about it. I mean, look, there is no question that we did not engage with Puerto Rico as the kind of national drama and emergency, the way we did with Katrina, the way we did with the hurricane in Houston. And that was not, all the Trump administration, but the Trump administration certainly played into that. Um, And, you know, I think the lasting image most of us have of President Trump is throwing paper towels into this audience, a gesture which seems, you know, wholly inadequate at best and utterly insensitive at not best. So, you know, the idea that, like, there was more to be done. I guess, John, I want to go back to your theories about why you think Trump has been essentially or relatively speaking, let off the hook. Is it just like part of our pell-mell chaos or something else going on? I don't know. And we should note again that the president, just one other beat on the kind of president and his relationship to this is that at one point he said, nobody could have done what I've done for Puerto Rico with so little appreciation. So he has tried to take before these numbers he is. This was I can't remember when he said that, but it was a while ago. Um, he has tried to take credit for what the federal government has done for Puerto Rico. So he recognizes or thinks he's he should get credit for it. So if he gets credit, then should he now should he now get the blame? I think the reason that he hasn't. Well, I got a couple of things. One, he may be getting the blame. I mean, his approval ratings are not sky high Two, they, I think it is the pell mell. I think it is. Um, both the media is distracted by the daily craziness, and I think readers and viewers are distracted by the daily craziness on either two fronts. One front is, oh my gosh, what's the latest thing with the, the Mueller investigation? Or, oh my gosh, I'm I'm hearing constantly about the you know the incompetence or the malfeasance or the investigation, and so one more piece of bad news, even though. Um, it may be more morally important when you're talking about actual deaths of people. It just gets all kind of in the noise and gets lost in that. And then there's, I think, the, to the points that David was making, it's not, Puerto Rico is not like, you know, uh, Houston or Florida or the places we normally see where the nation gets involved in the drama. And that's, there's obviously a, you know, the racial piece to that. Although I, I was thinking about this because I remember when we did a show or did an, uh, had a, conversation about puerto rico months ago i think i said something about how i actually didn't think of puerto ricans in the same way i thought of texans or Connecticut. and i hope you got blowback for that less than you think Hmm. but i actually realized that i kind of feel the same way about alaskans and hawaiians that actually my sense of america is really contiguous it's contiguous can i use a word improperly you need to grow your sense of america this is part of america like come on why are you being so that's what i'm i'm encouraging him to move beyond admitting it to shifting well but 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 i don't i think it makes sense like makes perfect sense that if when things are geographically far-flung that you feel less sense of common cause with them. But California is also geographically far flung from the East Coast and vice versa. And like we know we're all connected. 
Yeah. Well, Puerto Rico is also not a state and that has, that actually has weight. And it's probably, and there's probably racism. Like I'm, it's probably some form of implicit racism. And leftover colonialism also. I mean, Puerto Rico has a different status for all these like embedded historical reasons that are uncomfortable. Yeah. I think that the most important result of, well, I think there are two hugely important results, for, but political result from this is that hundreds of thousands of Puerto Ricans seem to have moved to Florida in particular. And there may be a significant block of voters who are going to be really pissed, who are going to be voting um, on issues. And that could make a difference in certain congressional races and in the even presidential election. And in the governor's, and the race, governor's race in Florida and in a really um, important um, ballot initiative to restore the vote to disenfranchised former felons. The reason we want to know the, the answer to this is obviously to uh, keep it from happening again. And also it should not be possible that this many people die and it just kind of it goes it goes on kind of I mean it's we're remarking upon it, but I've been really frustrated in the in the way in which it's hard to say like here are specific things that should have been done. It does seem like it could it would have been easy to anticipate the interruptions of medical service that happened as a result of this afterwards, uh, and and so who should have been. Was the is the governor of Puerto Rico who should have been on the case there, and and who is the office at FEMA where the person should have said, you know, we're gonna because this happened in, in Katrina, this happened with the nursing homes, it's always happening with the nursing homes when the electricity goes out. So didn't somebody say, oh my God, this electricity stuff's gonna murder people in in you know nursing homes or who are rely on electricity to stay alive? And then where did that memo go? Like, and did nobody? Surely somebody said, hey, this is gonna be a problem. And anyway, so I can't wait for that information to be found. I Just to, in closing on this, one other thought I had, because I'm a, I'm a horrible person, is <laughs> that... Not. Is that um, You're just more honest than most of that us. That I wonder if this is the... And I think, again, actually, I think I, I feel like I'm reprising something I've said before, but that this is... That Puerto Rico is the kind of canary in the coal mine around climate refugees... I have a colleague who just went to the island of Montserrat. Montserrat is another Caribbean island that ha- was uh, had an active volcano. The volcano destroyed a huge amount of the island a few years ago. And actually, so its population cut from 12,000 to 3,000. Wow. Uh, and, you know, it's it's climbed back up a little bit, but it's just, it's it's a shell of what it was because it has this extremely dangerous volcano on it that has nothing to do with climate change. But I, I feel like the... the the Caribbean, because it's in the path of all these storms, is in a tenuous situation. And it may be that it's really hard to maintain rich, prosperous, you know, infrastructure, uh, functional economies in those places. Well, and, that, and that people are going to, if they want to have a higher quality of life and, and standard of living, they may have to leave. Yeah, this is the Jack Schaefer's piece that he wrote after Katrina, basically saying, don't repair don't go back. New Orleans don't repair New because Orleans, yeah. it's geographically situated in a place that's going to, you know, that was, it was uh, he got a lot of blowback for that. Um, there's a certainty this is going to happen again in Puerto Rico. And when you read the stories about what they're doing to restore electricity and the kind of pell-mell rush to try to get the lights on, which is, of course, important, but it's just like it's not sustainable for when this hits again. Roseanne is gone from the airwaves at ABC. The rebooted sitcom was canceled on Tuesday, just hours after star Roseanne Barr sent a racist tweet about former Obama aide Valerie Jarrett. 
This tweet, of course, followed close on the heels of another, an anti-Semitic tweet about George Soros that she'd sent. And she has a long history of uh, saying and tweeting disgusting things about people. I am surprised, actually, how few people have risen to her defense. That that even on the right, there has been very little grand speak out on behalf of her her free speech rights on the political correctness that has that has wiped out her show. Really, I feel like there was a wave of what about all these mean things that various comedians and celebrities have said about conservatives. Why is this any different? The usual, you know, accusations about political correctness taking over the debate. Trump, while he um, complained about ABC not apologizing to him or not uh, whatever. Yeah, I guess that was it. Uh, didn't Hasn't made it a, a kind of rallying cry the way he could have, but I suppose. But he, I don't know. I when feel you like- participate in this argument by saying that there's an equivalence between comparing the president to an orangutan and using a centuries-old racist construction to talk about a, a black Valerie person. Jarrett. Like, are you are you even allowed in the conversation? Well, everyone's allowed into the conversation, no, but know, you but don't but have a lot of like you're, the the water is lapping at your feet. Yeah, you're I like mean, gonna, the island is eroding beneath this is you. Not, you can I mean, it's just not. It, right. it's, it's not really, a serious to see argument. That equivalence is really is an admission of something you don't want to be admitting. Yeah, if that you're you know, a person, right? You are you, willfully ignorant of history. Yeah, and willfully ignorant of what makes it different when you're talking about someone being criticized for the color of their skin, which they cannot control, and someone being criticized in the normal. I just, it's uh, it's so dispiriting to see that. Well, but yes. I don't think the what, but okay, so there's some whataboutism, but there's not very much defense of her. No one is, no, there's nobody who's sort of defending anything that she said, right? Not much, I guess. I mean, that was there was that insane Bill Mitchell tweet that was like trying to well, make it compliment. It was ridiculous. Yeah, Forget that. That's, okay, that's all I can come up with right now. I mean, look, defending over racism is something that most people don't want to do. Even now, she managed to cross a line, though she was being given a lot of leeway. Um, I also think the anti-Semitic stuff was uh, appalling because she was accusing. George Soros of having abetted the Nazis when he was a child and hiding at the time. And that is another just like utter distortion of history that is... It, well, mm. arm people for why that's a distortion of history. Well, because... <laughs> well, no, because, you know, some people don't... Right, because like the Nazis murdered many, many Jews. There were Jews who were collaborators. That is like a small fraction, a complicated history. If you were a person who survived in hiding um, as a child, the notion that you were somehow complicit or responsible. And this is also a smear that's been used to discredit George Soros for many years because he is giving money to liberal causes that um, conservatives like Roseanne Barr don't like. And... He was 13 years old when he was in hiding, uh, in hiding from the Nazis. Yes. I mean. So one of the the points about this Roseanne controversy that has made liberals so happy is that it um, is that the show Roseanne, the rebooted show Roseanne pre- depicts her character as a and the, the her husband's character as economically anxious people who are kind of culturally tolerant. They're rough around the edges. But they're basically and they're Trump supporters. They're Trump supporters, but they're culturally characters. tolerant. Um, but that's run smack into the person of 
Roseanne Barr, who is not economically anxious. Or culturally tolerant. And she's not, she's a racist. She's an anti-Semite. She's a viciously intolerant person. And so I think that that liberals are enjoying this this um, fact that the most one of the most celebrated Trumpists is turning out to be the the bigot the bigot that they suspect lots of Trump voters are, and that this claim of economic anxiety as a driver of Trump support is not true, and and therefore Roseanne's the the show they they were irritated by the show Roseanne for that reason. Um, does this vindicate that view? Does it vindicate the no. idea that? Trump supporters are are driven by racism and cultural uh, cultural war. No, no, because it's no, one person, no. right? No, it's right. It's one person, and you and to define an entire group by the worst behavior of one of its members is is awful. Now there, it's but it separate and apart from that, in a separate thing that is also true is there's been a lot of analysis and a lot of study of the Trump voters and the role of race. And the feeling about immigrants taking jobs and the role of people of color taking jobs from people who are either self-identified Trump supporters or who agree with a lot of his campaign promises. There was a significant number that um, were motivated in surveys and interviews by those feelings about the other more so than about wage levels rising and and. Um, and other things that Donald Trump might have been saying. So that there is some evidence separate and apart from this whole conversation that there were um, race-based motivations behind some of the opinions of the Trump supporters. But that is separate and apart from from this. Do you guys watch this TV show? And is this a loss? Like, was it a good thing to have a depiction on television of white Trump supporters that was three-dimensional and had empathy in it? And I ask this as someone who has not watched one minute of the old Roseanne or the new Roseanne. And you can see that as like my blindness to, to white Trump supporters. But I will also say I've watched not one minute of like almost every network television show in the last 30 years. So, well, I, part I of the did. Group. I watched the uh, premiere of the new one. Katana was watching it for something and I found it just terrible and tedious, but I didn't find it terrible and tedious because I thought it was so politically back at or anything. I just, that format of the, the sitcom. The, the sitcom and with the studio laugh track is is a deadly formula in, a, in the age of modern television. So I I, I don't feel it's like it's hard I can make, for you to be like I missed this critical show. judgment. Yeah, uh, my critical judgment is man that form is terrible. But I don't know if the show was terrible. Right, you were making an art judgment, not a political judgment. I liked the fact that it was out there in the world with a huge following. I like that it was pushing back against the liberal groupthink of of the entertainment industry. The show. This is the show. Yes, yes. Itself. We, well, we understand no, I mean, you, but good to but clarify. But I can hear, you know, people rushing <laughs> to social media. Um, Why do you think they've pulled all the old episodes also off the air? I don't think that she's a Cosby. Why is it that the show that existed in the 90s can no longer be aired? It can no longer be seen by free-thinking people. Yeah. Well, I isn't don't... that a marketing decision that they're just trying yeah, to... Sure. Yeah. So it's just about dollars and cents, I don't right? actually think that pulling Cosby reruns, I mean, I guess reruns, I guess you, right, do you want money to be going? But, like, the notion that we have to lose all the past work because of the sins of the present when these are shows that were historically important. Like, if you were writing the history of, what is this, 90s TV, the same way with 80s TV, you would include it with the Cosby show. Like, I don't know, that always seems weird to me on the other hand i don't like the idea of lining the pockets what, of racists what what would be wrong with recasting the show with somebody else playing that character i don't think anything at all i think it would be great they should do that 
Yeah. You, you volunteering? <laughs> you a middle-aged I, man, not a middle-aged know, woman. You can do it. You can do it. Oh, yeah. you can thanks, do it. thanks, thanks. <laughs> also, I, for my viewing the, the show, I thought it could have been more cleverly done That's and more feeling. cleverly convey the complexity and worldview of the of the people to whom that show was either supposed to be speaking or speaking for. I mean, I thought it was a failure in art by the target it was trying to hit. Um, but then again, what the hell do I know? You know, I mean, I in terms Quite of... Quite a lot, actually. Well, no, but uh, what do I know about what appeals to huge, you know, millions and millions of people in a sitcom? Maybe there's... Maybe you, my standard you is different. You do host a show on network television. <laughs> well, so I know, but I... I, I, I think your, your qualifications to judge are somewhat better than well, almost anybody else. <laughs> Who knows? I don't know. <laughs> All right. Let us go to cocktail chatter. When you are... Um, Spewing racist garbage on your porch? No, that would never happen. When you are, when you are, uh, yeah, I really hope not. I get in big trouble yeah, in my neighborhood right. for that. Uh, when you are, um, plus you would find saying, it morally repugnant. Sanctimonious liberal ah, things on your porch, Emily you. Bazelon. You what will you be chatting? You have yeah. my number. Um, before you answer that question, I am going to try a new thing this morning. Ooh, we're going to try new thing. Uh, we are going to try having pew, pew, pew. listener chatter this morning and we are going to draw this chatter from tweets that are tweeted at the Slate Gab Fest handle. We're just going to pick something we like, some small, hopefully uh, entertaining little item. And today comes um, from Drew Reads the News. That's the Twitter handle. And he wrote in, hey, Slate Gap Fest, just now getting around to reading my May issue of The Atlantic with Dickerson's article. And whose name do I see but Emily Bazelon, page 13. Where are you at, David Plotz? You in this magazine, too? So I got this tweet and was like, huh, I'm going to confess I let my print subscription to The Atlantic run out, which was bad. And I still don't know what I'm doing on page 13. I hope it's something kind of nice. And yeah, David, what, they should have written about what, you have, Why haven't you just Googled like the, I'm sure the whatever articles in print is on the online. I kind of tried for a minute and I couldn't figure it out fast. Maybe you'll figure it out. Or maybe Drew Reads the News can write back to us. Is, uh, in any case, listeners, if you've got a great tweet if you have a, a chatter that you want to share with us it could be about the show but it could be about some wonderful thing that we should have and i promise i won't always pick one that are always, like secretly yeah. about promoting myself yes <laughs> uh but tweet at slate Gapfest and we'll share one uh in coming weeks all right my own chatter is about abortion rights we had a um kind of bifurcated week it started with Ireland um, ending its ban on abortion to the celebration of a great deal of people and a lot of them women in Ireland and an amazingly lopsided vote more than I think it was more than 65 percent of the country voting to end this ban, which is just really interesting in terms of Ireland's Catholic history and the decision by voters that having a total ban on abortion is too much. And so it's that's. That is really a landmark. On the other hand, here in the United States, we have states passing abortion restrictions that would appear to be clearly illegal under Roe versus Wade, 15-week bans in Mississippi, and I think one got struck down in Iowa. Um, There's a six-week ban in some state. And uh, rather, I thought, well, I can't decide if this is surprising, but the Supreme Court declined to hear an appeal of a case in Arkansas about a law in Arkansas that has banned medical abortion. So this is when you take pills instead of having a surgical procedure. 
The effect of this ruling right now is to close two of the three clinics in Arkansas. And it would seem to be um, wholly at odds, this law, with the Supreme Court's ruling in 2015, which was about a very similar and um, more onerous set of regulations in Texas that also severely decreased access to abortion in the kind of fake name of protecting women's health. This is like identical. And yet we have the Eighth Circuit, the Court of Appeals, upholding this law, at least for now, sending it back to the district court judge who had struck down the law, telling the district court judge that she didn't make enough factual findings about how many women were going to be affected. So essentially, the Eighth Circuit is was seemed to be daring the Supreme Court about whether it really meant what it said in the 2015 case, which is called Whole Women's Health. And the Supreme Court said, like, you guys work it out. We're not getting involved right now. It just seems like a strange sign and a bad sign for um, people who care about access to abortion because it suggests it sort of invites other states and other lower courts to mess around with what seemed to be a pretty clear ruling in 2015. So we should be watching this. I found the article about you, Emily. Looks oh. like it's it was a quote in a Connor, Connor Friedersdorf store piece. Yeah. All right, nice. Hopefully, about some story you did about how Republicans learn to love working mothers. Oh yeah, Ivanka Trump. I remember that. Okay, thank you, John. What's your chatter? My chatter is it's about some photographs, but it's it's based on a place you can go look at these photographs. Well, a if you're in, if you're in San Francisco, you can go look at them at the San Francisco San Francisco Museum of Modern Art, but. You're not there. You can read the piece in the New Yorker by um, Louis Menand. Yes. Okay. I wasn't sure whether I was pronouncing that right. Um, and it's it's about these photographs. And what they are is they are photographs taken from Bobby Kennedy's funeral train in June of 1968 as it went from New oh, York yeah. to Washington. Um, yeah. And on that train, um, and so he was going from St. Patrick's where his funeral was held to Arlington Cemetery, where he was to be buried next to his brother. And on that train was a photographer for Look Magazine. And that photographer is Paul Fusco. He photographed the people along the roadside, or excuse me, along the train side, who had just come to pay their respects to Kennedy. And it is just an amazing, the the photos themselves are amazing about all the different kinds of people, um, all different shapes and sizes, men, women, black, white, young, old, it's also a snapshot of America in that time, which is fascinating just in terms of what America looked like. But then as art, what he did was, because the train is moving, the light is going down, he can't take a quick snap of the people or they will look blurred. So what he did was he moved his camera as he was shooting to try to compensate for the movement of the train, which was going rather slow because people wanted to pay their respects. But he moved the the camera in such a way that what happens is that the photographs capture one or two faces in perfect clarity. And yet around them is this blurred Mm -hmm. image of Mm -hmm. America at the time. So there is a lot going on in these photographs. um, And and they're worth just kind of sitting on and reflecting on. And then obviously the question becomes, could there be a politician about whom, you know, who who would have this kind of a turnout? And then I think if you want to challenge yourself, there are a lot of people who I, I interviewed somebody because I'm doing a piece about this for CBS. I went down to interview some people along the track who watched it all up and down the eastern um, seaboard. And one of the people I interviewed said they, you know, loved the Kennedys because he was the first Irish president. And it wasn't because this person was a Democrat. It wasn't because this person had a deep feeling about really much of anything other than it was a tribal affiliation. So in the Kennedy 
support. There is this tribal affiliation to the Kennedys, which extended to Teddy Kennedy, which liberal heroes, when they hear Trump supporters say the same essentially tribal things about their president, they think it's a sign of the basically stupidity and dimwittedness of the Trump supporter. And so if you want to challenge yourself, put your, you know, reverse that. And that's, you know, that's just another thing that sort of occurred to me. But of course, just the beauty of this and the solemnity is the much more important point. Very cool. My chatter is actually two chatters. First, in the New York Times this week, as the Mueller investigation nears a crescendo and as uh, Robert Mueller is perhaps gearing up to interview the president, the Times looked back to the last time a president was interviewed by a special counsel. And uh, Peter Baker, who's the Times' absolutely marvelous, brilliant political correspondent, continues to be a White House correspondent today, but he was the best correspondent covering the Clinton White House even back in the 90s, recounts uh, through an oral history what happened when Ken Starr's team quizzed Bill Clinton about Monica Lewinsky. There's all kinds of great drama in the piece. There's the the, the way in which the White House seems to get the audio disabled so that the grand jury is not able to ask questions, even though the grand jury was supposed to be able to ask direct questions. There's the fact that the people in the room didn't realize at the time what a big deal it was that, that Clinton said that depends on the meaning of the word is, what the word of the meaning of the word is, is. And then there's this post-testimony speech, which I had forgotten. I don't know if you remember this, John, but a post-testimony speech where Clinton sort of admitted wrongdoing and then excoriated the Starr investigation, which I, I did not remember him doing that, but I guess he did. Yeah, I forgot the specific one as well. I mean, I definitely remember that he attacked Starr. Uh, so anyway, I would commend to you this really excellent piece in The Times by Peter Baker about that. And then my other quick uh, chatter is just a, about a book that another Slate podcaster and former Slate colleague of ours, Mike Pesca, I mean, Mike is still a Slate, we're, we're not, has done. It's called Upon Further Review, The Greatest What Ifs in sport his, Sports History. And Mike has gathered 30 or so wonderful writers to write often very funny, speculative essays and and sometimes comic pieces about what would have happened had some certain sporting events gone differently. So what, for example, would have happened if the U.S. had boycotted Hitler's Olympics? What would have happened if Bobby Riggs had actually beaten Billie Jean King? And and there's another one, which is um, what if the Dodgers had never moved to L.A.? And in fact, Mike is also doing a, a podcast in association with a book, and he had uh, Robert Siegel of NPR did did the what if the Dodgers had never moved to L.A. as a feature story for that podcast, which is also very charming. So you should check out Pesca's book upon further review. That is our show for today. The Gabfest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researchers is he Rode. You can follow us on Twitter at Slate Gabfest. And in fact, tweet at us with some chatter of yours, some wonderful point that, that we should observe, make uh, in the next show. So at Slate Gabfest, and we will pick one of those for examination and review next week. For Emily and John, I'm David Plotz. Thank you for listening. We will talk to you next week, and hopefully we'll see you in Philadelphia on July 18th. Go to slate.com slash live to get tickets for that show. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. 
my colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. 